Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. John Hartigan about his new book, Shaving Beasts, Wild Horses and Ritual in Spain, a vivid first-person study of a notorious equine ritual from the perspective of the wild horses who are its uh, targets. Wild horses still roam the mountains of Galicia, Spain, but each year in a ritual dating to the 1500s called Rapa das Pestas, villagers herd these beasts together and shave their manes and tails. Shaving the beasts is a first-hand account of how the horses experience this traumatic rite, producing a profound revelation about the durability of sociality in the face of violent domination. John Hartigan Jr. Uh, constructs an engrossing day-by-day narrative chronicling, chronicling the complex, nuanced social lives of wild horses and the impact of their traumatic ritual shearing every summer. His history generates intimate individual portraits of these creatures while analyzing the social practices, like grazing and grooming, that are building blocks of equine society. Shaving the Beasts culminates in a searching portrayal of an inspiring resilience these creatures display as they endure and recover from rapid asbestos. Turning away from the thick description to thin, Hartigan moves uh, towards a more observational form of study focusing on behaviors over interpretations. This vivid approach provides new and important contributions to the study of animal behavior. Ultimately, he comes away with profound, penetrating insights into multi-species interactions and a strong alternative to human-centric ethnographic practices. John Hartigan Jr. is a professor at the Department of Anthropology and Director of Americo Paredes Center for Cultural Studies at the University of uh, Texas, Austin. His most recent book include uh, Care of the Species, Races of Corn, and the Science of Plant Biodiversity, and Aesop's Anthropology, a multi-species approach. Well, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So I would like to start uh, by asking you a question about your response to the current situation we're living in. So we have the pandemic going on. And could you just describe how has it impacted you and your work? Yes. Um, well, it's you know been disorienting, certainly, uh, uh, but mostly in terms of teaching. Uh, my uh, research was all completed prior to the epidemic. Um, but it's impacting my ability to do some new projects, which you know perhaps we'll, we'll talk about at the end of the show. Uh, but um, in, in terms of, of um, this book, what was you know quite surprising to me about the uh, pandemic is uh, the concept of social distance. It, it was something I had been writing about when I was uh, doing the analysis for the book. Horses have a very keen sense of social distance too. And it, it, it really made me think um, about how this is a, a broad problem for social species in general, how they work out attraction, repulsion, and alignment. Uh, so all of the you know strictures around social distancing and the efforts to uh, distinguish um, that from say physical distancing, you know, trying to keep sociality intact in spite of all that, and then just um, the the manifold ways that um, our our reliance now on forms of mediation to uh, to socialize just makes so palpable the importance of these kind of, of micro level interactions uh, that you know fall by the wayside uh, when we're in a digital medium. All of those are key to uh, to to sociality, not just in our species but other species. This is very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the horses, such as uh, uh, social animals, but uh, do you think that they mostly rely more on a decentralized 
system to the social distancing, whereas, as we've seen in the pandemic, we have to really focus our efforts to organize these efforts. Oh, yes, absolutely. All of the mm -hmm. other species are are decentralized. Um, you, you, their forms of sociality don't in, involve institutions. Um, but what is striking, it, you, you know, uh, so there was a, a couple of, of incidents very early in the pandemic when some of the strictures were being lifted in the U.S., uh, like permitting people to go to the beach or the park. And, and they kind of, you know, public health officials thought, oh, well, that won't be a problem. But then all of these people all did it at once. It was kind of a herd phenomena. And, and they hadn't quite conceptualized that this species dynamic of ours was, was going to play out even in these you know wide open spaces yeah very interesting um can you tell us uh, more about how you uh, adapted your academic uh, life and teaching or with regards to uh, to student interactions yeah well all of our, our courses at the university of texas are are done virtually now um, and uh, at least over the summer, they had turned out to be an advantage. Um, I, I found my typical summer offering that the students were engaging with the readings much more. And, and that's partly because they were all isolated at home and, and really didn't have a lot of other things to do. So the quality of the engagement kind of went up. Um, and as well, I'm currently teaching um, a 300 uh, student um, introductory course. And uh, because I pre-record the lectures, I, I have the synchronous class time just devoted to questions. And I get far better questions, you know, more probing questions than I would ever do in, in a large lecture hall. So there have been some advantages pedagogically. Interesting. Will you uh, retain these uh, practices after? I, I'm, I'm thinking about how to do that, uh, particularly mm -hmm. with uh, a synchronous session that's just devoted to, uh, to questions from the students. I think they're much more comfortable doing that when they're at home uh, and they don't have, you know, a room of 300 people around them. They're far more comfortable. Excellent. That's really informative uh, uh, for us uh, and especially for uh, um, staff who are teaching in these times and uh, maybe are finding it a little bit hard to coordinate. So, okay, so let's talk more about you. So can you tell us how you got interested in studying anthropology? Uh, yes. Um, well, I, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and I, you know, that was in the 1970s, a very disruptive time. We had the kind of economic collapse. Uh, and also as a white kid in a predominantly African-American city, you know, I thought a lot about race, um, you know, how it matters in some situations and then seemingly not in others. So um, I, I was really kind of intrigued by social di dynamics. Uh, you know, how do these things shape our identities? And um, uh, I, I had a fortunate circumstance as an undergraduate at the University of Michigan to get involved in a semester long um, student faculty research project where I got to try out doing ethnography. And this was uh, with a mentor, Katie Stewart, who had been doing field work in uh, Appalachia, in the coal camps there. And uh, she was interested in how people from that region had migrated to industrial jobs in cities like Detroit. So I was able to apply this anthropological perspective to uh, circumstances that I was fairly f familiar with. And that just gave me a, a great sense of the potentiality of cultural anthropology and ethnography to pose and answer interesting questions. So you were already interested from a young age in, in these uh, complex questions. And uh, can you give a perspective whether mentors or uh, your environment helped you to really realize that this is your field that you would want to continue within it? Yes. Um, 
you know, mentors played the key role. So um, uh, after uh, my undergraduate work, I, I went to get my doctoral degree at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And there I, I, I attended the, the history of consciousness department, a very unique place. And uh, my mentors were Donna Haraway and James Clifford and Hayden White. And each of them uh, really, you know, um, helped me develop a theoretical orientation on the kinds of questions that I had. And uh, without that, I, I really wouldn't have been able to do generative work. Do you have any advice for the early career academic listeners? It, you know, it, I, I was pondering that, and I think it's difficult because um, you know disciplines are are so different. But in my case, with anthropology, it really mattered to study something that I was already familiar with. Uh, you know, that gave me a great advantage um, and, and great insights. You know, typically, um, you know, people kind of get, you know, cast into, you know, projects that are very remote or which they don't have much familiarity with. Um, I, and that can also, you know, be generative. But in my circumstances, I see the value of starting with and returning to things that you are already familiar with. Excellent. Okay, then this brings us right to the question about how did you come around to writing uh, the book? Yeah, well, um, the sort of, of long version is I spent about 20 years as an academic working on race in the U.S. Um, and, uh, you know, beginning with questions of, of whiteness, how to objectify that working through um, a kind of cultural history of a very loaded stereotype of white trash, um, then doing a media ethnography of what we refer to as our national discourse on race, our national conversation on race. And then finally, uh, wrapping that up with um, a textbook on ethnographic approaches to race. So after a about 20 years of that, I felt I had kind of, you know, tapped out what I had to say and, and the kind of approaches that I could, you know, formulate. And I started, you know, casting about to, you know, work elsewhere. Um, and so I started thinking about working in Mexico on a genomics project there. Um, I had from my graduate uh, training, some background in science and technology studies. So I was ready to kind of turn to um, looking at geneticists as as a, a tribe, if you will. Um, and, you know, very quickly things shifted. Um, I, I, I shifted from working in Mexico City on a, a human genome project to uh, working um, in uh, Guanajuato uh, on a, a maize genome project. And there's, you know, a bit of background there, but, you know, succinctly, I, I was drawn to the fact that the both genetics projects were thinking in terms of race, that is races of corn or a maize. Um, and I began to you know shift my understanding of genetics. I thought it, it was mainly about humans, but we had most of genetics research is on uh, non-humans, particularly agricultural species. So 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 gradually my frame of reference started to change. And, and, and with race, um, you know, we have these concepts like indigenous or native. Um, I had always assumed that those were about people principally, but I it came to recognize that those terms were applied to plants first and then applied to, to humans. So, so very gradually, my, my focus on the, the human became destabilized and that opened up great possibilities. So in the, um, uh, in my prior book, Care of the Species, it, it, it opens with um, ethnography of plant science in Mexico, and then proceeds to do a series of studies of botanical gardens in Spain, in, in Madrid, in, in Barcelona, and Valencia. Uh, and, and by the end of that ethnography, I've adapted the botanist techniques of, of description and observation 
and I used them to constitute some of the plants as ethnographic subjects. I, I started you know, shifting from trying to understand the representations of plants in people's heads to then trying to understand plants from an ethnographic angle. Uh, and this is possible because plants are actually very social, uh, but the limitation there is most of that sociality occurs underground in the rhizome. Uh, you know, they exchange nutrients and co communication back and forth. And as an ethnographer, that's inaccessible to me. So I started thinking about, well, you know, how could I look at non-human forms of sociality uh, among animals? And I, I had an initial idea uh, about uh, rewilding. These rewilding projects are, are kind of a, a very popular in Europe and somewhat in the U.S., uh, an idea that you can take um, a species and kind of turn it loose in some relatively undisturbed terrain and that gradually it will become wild again. And, you know, it's very complex politics there. Um, but as I, I was doing this, I, I had the great fortune of um, a graduate student in our anthropology program, Jaime Mata Maiguez, uh, and he said, well, you, you know, if, if you're interested in, 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 in rewilding, and I, I was looking at, at horses in particular, he said, well, well, you really ought to go observe this ritual in my home, Galicia, Spain. And, and, and it's this Rapa das Bestas. I said, wow, Jaime, tell me more. <laughs> and so, you know, he explained it um, and I was immediately intrigued. And so um, I got together some, some research funds uh, that enabled me to go and do a kind of preliminary observation. And I said, wow, this ritual is gonna let me pose and answer so many interesting questions about non-human sociality. You described a, such a fascinating journey, how you arrived uh, to this book. So it included uh, quite a lot, so included science, genomics, then plant sociality, which is really interesting concept itself. And then uh, it culminates in this, in this really marvelous marriage of the societal and scientific concepts in a book. So then what inspired you to flip the narrative of the contemporary discussion of human anthropology from human-centric, what we're really used to, to more animal-centric point of view? Yes, um, you know, great question. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll answer it, it, it in two ways. First, in the most immediate way, um, when I, I attended this ritual, so the Rapidas Bestas, um, it's... Um, this has been going on for at least 500 years. Um, you, you have these, you know, free-ranging horses that every summer are, are, are herded together. Um, and as you said in, in the introduction, you, you know, systematically sheared. Um, in, in, in anthropology, at least in the U.S., we, we have a foundational text. It's by Clifford Geertz, and it's about the Balinese cockfight. So in Bali, where he did, you know, field work, they, they have these, you know, cockfight rituals in which, you know, the people wager huge, huge sums on them. And uh, it's a foundational piece because Geertz says in it, it's not really the cocks that are fighting. Actually, it's the men. Uh, and, and, and so he means by that, you know, what's important here are the kind of, of representations of status among the, the humans. And, and the cocks are just this, this kind of medium by which human representation works. So I'm watching this you know, ritual, which has many of, of the same features. There's a, a great deal of violence, uh, particularly between stallions who fight. And I, I, I had the intuition that, well, I could invert Geertz's model. And instead of assuming that the, the horses are just this medium, I could actually look at their social structure and how it's impacted by this very traumatic event and make the horses the center of a ritual analysis. Interesting. That's exactly what provides this unique perspective where you have to really step out outside your own boundaries to really appreciate it. So do you, do you think this rec reconceptualization of the way we place and think about ourselves, especially timely 
uh, now uh, during the times we're living in a pandemic? Yes, you know, um, there's a couple of points here. Uh, um, you know, one is that um, uh, the the pandemic has featured a lot of uh, kind of apocalyptic thinking about collapse, calamity, disaster, um, and you know a great deal of anxiety. Uh, but but what comes through in this book is, is that you know when these horses are you know subject to you know intense chaos, um, their capacity for sociality endures and it uh, re emerges quite 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 powerfully um so you know i, I think that that speaks to our, our current moment um but I, I think more tangibly um you know what uh i what people are sort of newly aware of is the importance of, of social interaction when and so much of that now is occurring online or uh through through digital mediums we lose the ability to um, keep track of how others are, are paying attention to us and focusing on us you know, through bodily gestures. Uh, and it makes kind of, uh, you know, interacting so much more difficult. Uh, well, those kind of micro interactions are crucial to uh, human sociality as, as well as to all other, you know, social species. Um, and, and so, you know, at, at this particular moment, I, I, I think that, um, uh, there's a broader audience potentially for this book because of this kind of, of, of new awareness of um, the importance of these uh, uh, nonverbal forms of c communication. Interesting. So from your perspective, do you think uh, our species has the potential to uh, employ new forms of the social interactions which do not involve the face-to-face -face or micro micro gesture uh, readings that's something that we can really adapt with time or do you think we are more likely to go back to, to how it was rather than adopting new ways no i i think we're going forward inexorably mm -hmm. um and you know it's very evident in all of these um in these algorithms and various forms of artificial intelligence which are so capable of, of mimicking our, our communicative characteristics. Um, you have these, you know, social bots that, that are able to engage in conversation um, and perform kind of, you know, what we call parasociality. They're sort of, you know, mimicking it. Um, and, um, you know, that's only going to intensify. So, so we will need to be adapting to these um, very rapidly changing circumstances under which we socialize. Um, and, you know, well, we have you know, so many more forms of mediation by which uh, facial recognition is operating, but then also how we kind of, of, of polish up our, our, our digital image. Um, and then the uh, you know, kind of um, dominance that those uh, polished forms take on. Um, I, I, I anticipate we will have in increasingly uncanny and alienating encounters with the modes of sociality that have been characteristic of our, our species as we you know, go forward with you know, greater forms of digitization. Excellent. It's always good to hear that we have uh, sort of plasticity and dynamic dynamics to employ the new ways and really, really adapt going forward. So uh, speaking about rituals, that's exactly what you describe in a book. So what place do the rites and ceremonies have in the society at large and also on individual level? As, as, you, as you mentioned, we are more sequestered now because of the social distancing. And how does increasing interconnectedness challenge the perseverance of these practices into the future generations for people to go on? Yes, excellent question. Um, so in terms of the importance of ritual and getting back to your opening question, uh, you, you know, the most profound impact of the pandemic for uh, for my students, at least in the in the spring, was that they were unable to participate in the ritual of graduation. 
um, you know, and it was, you know, very devastating for them. And, you know, it's a ritual that, you know, many of them, you know, they would never have, have participated in it at the college level, but certainly at, at the, you know, secondary school or, you know, high school level. Um, and it's a ritual that they probably didn't put much stock in it, it, you, because it's a ritual. Uh, but when they're deprived of it, suddenly its importance was intensified. And they recognized that these things are very um, effective in, in marking a change of status. So, you, you know, where that ritual might for, you know, the college graduation where you so, you know, I'm at a university that has about 50,000 students. Uh, and so our, our graduation each year is, you, you know, thousands and thousands of students, you know, broken up in these uh, your different schools. And it, uh, you know, it seems quite kind of a bureaucratic and administrative. You know, there's a long list of names being read as they go ac- across the stage. It's sort of, of you know, kind of, of depersonalizing because of its scale. Uh, but then when you take it away, it's suddenly, oh, wow, that was very important and it matters. So ritual is something, you know, quite interesting uh, in, in a couple of broad regards. One, all vertebrates have rituals. So if you have a, a backbone, a skeleton, you, you, you have rituals. So, um, you know, all of the, you know, primates and mammals, we like see them on the nature shows, right? They have these, you know, mating rituals, but they, these come in a variety of, of forms. Um, and so uh, with horses, they have a greeting ritual and a departure ritual in terms of their, you know, uh, your signaling uh, with whinnies and nays, you, you know, okay, you're going, our relationship will, will be the same when we meet again, or, or, or you're arriving and it's the same. So, so ritual is, is a very powerful leveling analytic. It's something that uh, accomplishes uh, the important task of saying, okay, here's how we use it with humans, and here's how we use it with non-humans. It allows that kind of intellectual movement to be very fluid. The second dimension is ritual was very key for the beginnings of anthropology. This was one of the things that anthropologists could uh, very easily study and where you have, in a sense, a whole culture on, on display. So, you know, think of like a harvest you know, ritual, uh, you know, the whole village kind of comes together um, and, and people are expressly stating their values. You, you know, we are engaging in, in, in reciprocal exchange of, of yams, you know, because we want to establish these kinds of ties. So um, it, it was foundational for anthropology. But by the 1960s and 1970s, it became subject to a lot of criticism. Um, you know, one, because it, it looked at um, these exceptional events instead of routine and everyday kinds of, of practices. But it, it tended also to emphasize elites, you know, those who were in control of uh, officiating over a, a ritual. So it fell out of favor. Um, now it's it's coming back, or I, I'm certainly trying to you know do my part in in revisiting it, um, partly because um, it's another way of thinking about non-humans in the human cultural milieu. So many rituals involve animals, uh, you know, per mm-hmm. particularly in forms of of animal sacrifice. So, um, you know, suddenly you can see, oh, wow, this this um, form that we stopped paying attention to is actually a very powerful um, window, if you will, uh, onto the ways humans um, constitute self and social relationships in and through and with animals. Interesting. So um, you've put uh, several points that I haven't actually considered, especially with regards to marking change of status uh, of the uh, of events like ceremonies of the graduation, for example, but also the everyday routines that can bring solace and comfort to us every day. And do you think the loss of some of these are also contributing to this restructuring of how we view ourselves during these times? 
Yes. Um, so you, you, the like fundamental rituals, you, you know, we all generally engage in be, begin in the morning in the bathroom. The, you know, the, the various hygienic routines by which we put together a self that then is going to go out to face the world. Um, and it's a ritual because there it's a stereotyped set of behaviors, but also a, an intense set of meanings associated with them. You know, if I don't do these things, I will lose friends, I will lose my job, I will lose things, you know, so it, it's meaningful. Um, and, you know, when those personal rituals then um, don't have the kind of follow through of, of actual social interactions where the presentation of self can be affirmed by others. And that's something I'd like to get back to, you know, in a few minutes. Then um, those rituals become more a source of anxiety, perhaps, than the assuasion of anxieties, which is basically what you know rituals should achieve. So uh, speaking of the rituals on the on small society level, yeah, I have I have been a horse riding instructor for for a while okay. um, as a, as part of uh, of my career, and I can tell you firsthand that shaving a horse is not an easy task. (laughs) (laughs) So, especially if you've got a a herd of wild beasts. So how do you think, um, is it possible to keep this tradition going and this technical aspect of the whole society coming together every year and uh, performing this uh, spectacular, spectacular action? Yes, yes. Okay, very good question. Uh, and um, so a, a couple of things to, to respond here. Um, so th- there are at least a dozen of these Rapa das Bestas across Galicia. Um, and to, to, to one extent, they're very vulnerable to um, social and economic change. So um, uh, the, the, the practice of shearing the manes, for instance, had a material com- component. That horse hair could be used uh, to uh, braid rope, uh, to provide filler for for mattresses, or even you, you, to help support you know, plaster walls. Well, all of those uses get replaced with synthetic materials, you know, roughly the 1970s, 1980s. So, mm-hmm. so so there's a loss of value there. Um, and then, you know, importantly, um, this is a rural practice and um, the rural portions of Spain have been emptying out over you know, the last several decades as they are in many Western countries. So the, the people who you know, have been doing this, who have learned it and had it passed on through generations, it's it's very precarious whether they'll be able to pass it on to subsequent generations. At the same time, though, what what you can see in Sabucedo, where I, I worked, and in several other of these sites, um, people who are engaged in this ritual are thinking in terms of what we call heritage. Excuse me, heritage tourism. So so where tourists are drawn to to see these kind of um, historical forms of rural labor being performed. And in Sabucedo, it's enormously successful. They get literally tens of thousands of people there every year. And some of them are, you know, people returning to the village um, that, where they grew up or where their parents still live. But many more are, are coming who have no attachment to the place. And, and to, to that extent, um, you will likely see these rituals continuing uh, because they are a, a form of kind of, you know, ec- economic livelihood. You know, a lot of money pours in, into the area. And then one third dimension. So this, you know, population uh, of horses, quite intriguing. It, um, they're Diminutive, they're smaller in, in stature than than typical horses. They are in this remote locale, and some 
zoologists think that this is perhaps a refuge population from before the last ice age. So they were probably skipped over uh, by a lot of the domestication practices. So, so there's a movement both in um, Spain and Portugal uh, to turn this population into a breed. Uh, it, they're called Guiranos in Portugal and then Raza Galega in um, uh, Spain. Uh, and, and so to the extent that um, this ritual gives a basis for um, heightening attention to these breeding practices, that also might keep it sustained because in order to, to constitute this as a breed, they, they need both a distinct population and a kind of public acknowledgement or recognition that this is a distinctive form of the horse. So do you think the loss of uh, traditional practice of the ceremonies themselves, apart from this uh, ceremony tourism, is sort of a um, natural cause of the evolution of the societies where the new rituals and uh, ceremonies, ceremonies are being adapted? Yes, basically. So, so it, you know, this is a, an important question because um, by the old economic system of rural life, these would die out. Um, and, you know, they're, they're also, I, I should know, threatened because many villagers would pr prefer to have the range populated by cattle instead, which is, is a lucrative, um, uh, you know, population in contrast to these horses, which really don't, you know, generate wealth at all. Um, so, um, you, you know, this is the means by which the population can be regulated enough uh, that they're not considered too threatening to the like, cattle raisers, but then also, again, you know, calling a, a attention to their situation in the mountains such that people can become kind of attached to them and say, okay, well, yes, you know, this is a charismatic species and we should, you know, help perpetuate it. Excellent. Um, okay, so I would like to ask you more on the theoretical part. So can you give us a brief description of what is the multi-species social theory? And does it include all living ecosystems and could it be extended to inanimate matter? Yes, uh, yeah, this is a very important question. So, um, uh, over the last 10 years, roughly, ethnographers have been turning their attention to non-humans. Uh, and so um, over this process, it, it's mostly been kind of a question of method uh, and technique. You know, how do we include them? And, and the theoretical aspects have, have not been very, um, you know, foregrounded. Or, you know, to the extent that they've been there, it's been about, you know, how do we accommodate um, a humanistic frame of reference to incorporate these non-humans. Uh, what I'm working on is um, actually taking the social theory a bit more seriously uh, by engaging with evolutionary theory. Now, these two branches of a theory well, the, the, the emergence of social theory with Emile Durkheim uh, and sociology in the late 1800s, it, it, it was predicated on the idea that human sociality sort of achieved a kind of escape velocity from evolutionary dynamics and strictures. So, um, and they based that in, you know, it, there are, are, are so many different cultural ways of doing things. It's obviously not all, you know, functionally determined by evolutionary adaptation. Our, our, our brain, our mind is, you know, you know, far greater than what we would need just in kind of an adaptive sense. But um, what that forgets is um, what we have in terms of, of culture is evolutionarily conserved, uh, you know, certainly from, from the primate lineage. You know, we have it because uh, our, our evolutionary predecessors developed it, basically. And so that's what I want to, to focus in on, um, to, to get away from some of the uh, 
emphasis in social theory on what makes humans distinct, like language, uh, to instead think of, well, you, you know, what do we have in common with, with other social species? Um, and that you know, brings us back to these you know, kind of fundamental importance of things like ritual, uh, and, and then also this matter of social distance, working out attraction, repulsion, and alignment. How, how do other species do that? Um, and how can we, we see that among humans? And this is something that, um, you know, gets some support uh, outside of, of, you know, multi-species work. Um, with, with race theory, there's a, a, an increasing attention to, to, to what's called microaggressions. So, so, so these very subtle ways in, in a racial interaction, somebody can be you know, disdainful or dismissive um, or you know, pejorative without saying anything explicitly, but through a series of kind of nonverbal gestures. Um, so you know, that underscores what I think is important in engaging with uh, social theory in this broader manner. Excellent. And do you do you think that uh, this multi-species social theory can be applied in the contemporary world where we grapple with some of the uh, big issues like environmental challenges? Yes, yes. So, so um, I, I, I just wrote a piece on that. Um, so um, when we look at conservation movements, um, you know, what they, they often forget are the social aspect of species. So you see a lot of emphasis in conservation. Well, you, you know, we have to maintain genetic diversity. So, so when we're going to, you know, grab a bunch of individuals, you know, they're kind of thinking at, at that level. Um, but um, with say, you, you know, a species like elephants, well, uh, what matters very much are the matriarchs. Um, you know, the old females that have all the kind of knowledge of um, social relationships um, and the kind of skills to facilitate and mediate social interactions, well, they would kind of get, get left out if you're just thinking about reproductive populations. So, so what multi-species ethnography can do is, is, is bring a far more developed attention to um, animal cultures, uh, the social dynamics of species we would like to conserve uh, and make a case for, for thinking about, you know, one, how to pre preserve their, their forms of sociality, but also to devise projects that allow that sociality to flourish and, in fact, to be reproduced as much as the you know kind of a breeding core of a of a conservation population that's a great point but it also puts across the notion of understanding our uh, our humanity as it is and maybe being more humble when we look at these uh, um, societies which are not human yes yes it's very well pointed good point it you know, we're quite conceited you, you know we call it anthropocentrism, you know, we're mm. completely unique. Well, all species are unique. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, our version of uniqueness, you know, features language and, you know, our, our considerable material and, and political accomplishments. But um, that that does tend to uh, blind us to um, our, our commonality with these other species and, you know, uh, the fact that our livelihood as a species by and large depends on the thriving of so many other species um, from the kind of microbial level on up. Uh, so yes, it, it, it is a way of kind of, of disrupting the anthropocentrism, which is, is a very devastating mindset at this particular time. Excellent. Really fascinating topics. Okay, so I would just like to mention about the book that what really strikes me is the narrative that you employ in a book. You do an incredible work of placing your reader right in the middle of this of this action, 
basically blurring the lines between the observer and participator, then basically forcing the read- reader to arrive at the points you wish to convey in their own accord. So I see that this book is really wide, uh, uh, applicable for wide-ranging audience. What was your rationale for employing this type of uh, storytelling? Ah, uh, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that it works in in, in that manner. Um, I I spent a great deal of time writing and and rewriting this, um, and um, I'm not sure that the 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 rationale w- was entirely clear to to begin with. Um, you know, first, um, uh, I settle a narrative as a structure um, and, and that just open up all kinds of possibilities. Um, your typical academic book is structured by an argument. So you, so you have to get a set of concepts and introduce those and then kind of rigorously make everything fit into supporting that. A narrative in, in a kind of a broader philosophical sense is, of course, an argument, but it functions much differently. Um, it conveys more about a location, and it works to to place a reader in a location, uh, and arguably it gives you much more information. Um, so, um, you know, my process here was fairly complicated, though it's a I think a, a pretty simple, you know, structure and, and read. I, I had to first uh, learn how to do horse ethology. Um, and so, you know, chapter one explains how I participated in a field survey, uh, you know, fairly close to the site I ended up working in um, and, and how I, I learned to, you know, do uh, various kinds of sampling techniques. I, I learned to understand the, the horse ethogram. An, an ethogram is like a catalog of species typical behaviors, the, the type of things that you will see any species member doing. I had to like recognize this. I had to, to, to learn how to observe their um, social interactions. So affiliative behaviors where they're you know grooming each other, aggressive behaviors. I had to, to learn all, all this very quickly. Um, and I realized that um, I would need to explain that to uh, to uh, to readers, and and the most kind of economical way of doing that was just to uh, to settle on this narrative form. Here's how I I did it, kind of day one, day two, day three, day four, um, and and once I had that form, then it, it worked equally well when I set out on my own in the mountains above Sabucedo to observe the horses on the range apart from. From the humans, so I was able to then apply these ethological techniques. And yes, this matter of being a participant and being an observer, you know, very tricky to manage. Um, you know, but what I, I tried to do was make sure the reader could see what I was seeing. I, I said, okay, here's what I'm seeing, and then I structured it. All right, now that I'm seeing this, how am I thinking about this? You know, what am I? anticipating what's surprising me, et cetera. And then, um, so the the third stage, um, when the roundup begins, uh, you know, the, then I become a participant with my conspecifics. I'm there with the humans herding up these horses I had just been observing. It, it, it's very disconcerting. Um, but, you, you know, um, my participation, whether it's, so different from uh, you know my fellow humans be, because I was engaging in this work of observing how their band structure was impacted by this event, um, and it, and it was so legible. Um, you know, uh, it, it was very clear that when the the different bands are brought together, they worked very hard at separating themselves and maintaining a boundary between each band, um, but then. At, as the scale increases, as you get, you know, hundreds of, of horses brought together, that's no longer possible. Uh, and, and so you know, that breaks down and their ability to use social space as a kind of signifying medium that collapses. Um, and then, you know, gradually over the course of four days. And here again, the like narrative structure is very useful. I, I say, you, you know, day one, here's how it starts the ritual. You know, by day two, all this 
is collapsing uh, by day four. Wow, here it is re-emerging again. So that narrative form was uh, very liberating, um, and but 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 also very uh, you know generative. For me, as as an academic, I never learned to write narratively. You know, I, I always assumed that that's like what novelists do. You know, um, so I, I had to you know learn um, a whole vocabulary for for describing you know landscapes, you know hills and streams, etc. Um, and to you know mobilize that in some kind of, of coherent way, uh, the like storytelling format just uh, kind of worked quite well. Yes, absolutely, and that's uh, one of the strengths: you know, the ability to convey such difficult concepts uh, to wider audiences. Okay, so just to round up the discussion, I'd like to ask perhaps the most obvious but complex, and at the same time crucial question. So will we ever fully understand ourselves and our societies? And what do you think we need to do? Um, well, yes, you know, this is something that, that, that we'll just perpetually, uh, you know, grapple with. Um, and, you know, I think that this is, is the value of, of anthropology. It's, it, it's a way of um, attending to that question continuously. Um, and what we find is, you know, the answers change. Um, it's uh, hard to like, you know, settle on something, you know, comprehensive when um, we have these perpetual forms of change, like you know, digitization, uh, as we were talking about earlier. But but there is something um, when you look at a ritual like this. So, um, you, you know, it, it's humans and horses, and it extends back probably thousands of, of years. And, and it's quite likely the way that um, domestication was first affected with with the horses. This, you know, very, uh, you know, simple process by which, you know, humans walking out on the range, forming a cordon around the horses. Um, and the, the horses, uh, you know, could physically break through that with, with ease. Uh, but but their sociality is such that they they, they prefer to stick together regardless of, of the circumstances. And then so you see this this ritual playing out as it has for you know centuries at least. Um, the same pattern. Uh, and, and the horse sociality responds in the same way as the human does. And in the human sociality, it becomes inextricable with that of the horses. Um, this is a, a form of, um, of being, if you will. It's not a livelihood in the sense of uh, an economic value, but it's a, a very powerful set of relationships such that you know, these humans go up you know, during the winter, during the spring and fall to just watch the horses. They're, they're very entangled with them. So to the extent that we can see um, ourselves at the species level uh, in these kinds of social entanglements, then I think we do get uh, increasingly attentive to you know, what is it fundamentally about sociality that um, you know, keeps drawing us close together, and, but then at, at the same time, you know, creating all, all these problems of, you know, too close. Uh, and, and, we're, and we're perpetually sorting out, not close enough, too close. My, my favorite time uh, for observing the, the horses uh, I, I would get to to a band um, and wait until they started to nap. Um, and and when they nap, the group kind of constricts. They all move a little closer together. Uh, and then you know they're they're like napping. It's a contagious behavior for you know, you know maybe twenty minutes. And then when they wake up, they start. Oh wait, you're too close. Or I want to be closer to you. And they start you know pushing away and sort of realigning themselves. And and that's when I could see their relationships kind of on display. Um, so, you know, with that sort of, of almost primal, if you will, uh, understanding of, of sociality, then I think we we can kind of bring that to bear, even as we come up with, with these very new modes of socializing in digital realms. Fascinating. Just look, watching these dynamics and uh, yeah, it's really beautiful. Okay, John, we've taken a lot of uh, of your time. 
So could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, gladly. Um, and two things. So um, one is a theory book. Um, I conceive um, what I've written as a multi-species trilogy. So the first volume is Care of the Species, and that was ethnographic. The second volume is Shaving the Beast. The third one is just going to address the theoretical implications of all this. And I call it it's social theory for non-humans. Um, and it's something that I'm kind of live writing online. There's a, a platform called called Manifold, and, it, and it's available through this press, the uh, University of Minnesota Press. And so I, I post installments of, of my theoretical writing, and I, I, I ask people to engage with that. Um, and, and, and I'm explicitly trying to think how to, to meld evolutionary theory with social theory. Uh, but uh, ethnographically, um, I already started a new project two years ago on, on bullfighting in Latin America. Um, it's immensely popular in several countries, Mexico, Peru, and Colombia, and it's banned everywhere else in Latin America. Um, and so I'm quite interested in the ideas of, of race around the bulls, Rosas de Toros, much like with races of corn and and races of horses as well. Uh, but then also there are these very interesting indigenous variations on the bullfight. So, well, last summer I was at one in southern Peru where the bulls aren't killed. Um, and and it also takes place over several days. And they bring in, you know, different ranchers' cohorts of, of, of bulls. And they, you know, go out and kind of play with them, you know, play bullfighting, but they but they aren't killed at, at the end. Um, and so I'm intrigued by those practices. And they're probably, you know, quite old. And then, how, you know, what's the transitional moment when bulls become killable? Uh, and, and that has to do with breeding. When when they begin to be bred for this ritual. And that's when it, when they start talking about rasas de toro or you know, races of bulls. So um, I plan to look at breeding uh, you know, ranches in, in Colombia, and then as well some uh, of these um, created de toros or, or bullfights uh, in Mexico as well as Peru. These sound uh, very interesting projects. Thank you. So can you, can you tell our listeners, well, where can they find more information about the book and uh, your work? So you mentioned Manifold, yes. University of Minnesota Press. Yes, yes. So, so if, if you just um, Google social theory for, for non-humans, you, you'll probably find it. Um, but uh, you can go um, um, uh, online. At, at the press, um, and they have a link for this project. And in mine is one of many. They they have several dozen uh, of these um, kind of books in progress, and and it's a range from um, from ebooks and, and and what we call you know short books, books that are you know about twenty thousand words, um, to this uh, you kind of open source uh, platform. Um, and, and so uh, my book, um, Aesop's Anthropology, was published through a Creative Commons license, um, and it's part of this, you know, manifold project. Um, and and several other university presses are uh, par participating with it, uh, you know, making use of that platform for for their own publications. So uh, so that's a good place to go. Um, I, I post a lot of, of my work on academia.edu, so people can you know get access to my my writings there. And then of course you know the books, uh, which are available through University of Minnesota Press, but then also other kind of you know online book dealers. Excellent. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed our talk today. Me too. <laughs> so do you have any last messages you want to leave our listeners with? Um, not in, in, in particular, um, but if you're looking for a good narrative story about horses, um, this is it. <laughs> Shaving the beast. <laughs>
Perfect. So the book is Shaving the Beast, Wild Horses and Ritual in Spain. Okay. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Galena. It was a fantastic conversation. Pleasure. Take care.